Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and inform their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest today is Nope Min No, a photographer and author based in New York. Her work is an immersive exploration of the beauty of plants and nature. When I see her photographs, I find myself thinking of words like enveloping and otherworldly. The viewer is somehow drawn into a more three-dimensional space, the essence of the garden that is almost tactile as it wraps around you and where you can disappear into the page. No matter what she captures, I often feel as though I am looking at my own memory of a space or plant, whether or not I have seen it in person. Her creative expression stretches not only through different gardens and subjects. This year alone, she released gorgeous books with Gabriela Salazar and Umberto Pasti and has an upcoming book on the green spaces of New York. She also experiments with other media. I can see how these practices, along with her garden, give her a deeper understanding of her subjects and allow her to draw out their beauty and true nature. I am so grateful to have her work to transport and inspire me and to welcome her here. Welcome, Nope. Thank you. I wanted to begin by asking you just to describe yourself and your work. How do you characterize it is what you do? I'm primarily a photographer, and I photograph homes and gardens and landscapes. And I'm very interested in nature, and so I tend to gravitate towards a lot of gardens and landscapes in my work, and flowers in particular. And how did you come to this work? What was sort of the path? There's no definite clear path. In the beginning, when I first started out, I just photographed whatever was asked of me. And that ended up being primarily interiors in homes. I did a lot of work for interior magazines, or they call them shelter magazines. Don't hear that so much these days. So what happened a lot on those shoots is we would come in with an editor or a stylist and we'd bring in buckets and buckets of flowers and put flowers everywhere around the house. And I found it quite curious that a lot of times these people didn't know what the flowers were or they would treat it primarily as objects, as a pop of color, things to just sort of add something to the room. And I was primarily interested in them as flowers, as part of nature. And so it gave me the idea of doing a book about flowers, about bringing nature into the home, which is the function of a lot of flowers. So that was the beginning of my veer into the things that I was interested in. And just from there, I just started photographing more gardens and more flowers. Yeah. And what appealed to you about the art of photography? Why did you want to elevate the natural world in that way or make a separate recognition of it? Well, it took me a very long time to figure out what I wanted to do in life. (laughs) And it was purely by chance that I came across photography. I was really, really lucky early on that I was always offered amazing jobs, offered amazing things to do. And one of which was working on this feature film. And at the beginning, in preparation for the film, we, the director and I, along with the cinematographer, looked at a lot of black and white photography books. And that was because we wanted to shoot the film in black and white. So 
just having spent a lot of time with these two people looking at black and white photography and both of them are really really interested in photography obviously I don't have a lot of knowledge about it I learned that I too like photography and <laughs> would like to do, know more about it and so on the film there was a still photographer and she taught me how to print and I set up a dark room in my bathroom which at the time was in my kitchen because I lived in an apartment where there was no separate bathroom and mm -hmm. kitchen, just <laughs> a bathtub in the kitchen. So anyway, I started learning photography by taking black and white pictures and printing them myself. The curious thing is I never felt like I got very far with black and white photography, even though I really, really love it. But my own photography somehow didn't take off until I learned how to print color and mm -hmm. started working color. So that's how I started. And so obviously, color for me is a big thing. And nature is full of color. So right. and so many beautiful colors. So that's just sort of the natural evolution of my work. Is there anything looking back that you you can tell why or understand why the sort of color connection came through? I find in all of your work, color really is significant. It's I almost think it's how I notice it's you before it even take in the image. Right. And so I didn't know if you had any idea about why that was significant in what you were creating. I think it's intuitive, mostly. Mm. I was interested in painting also before photography. And in fact, long before I even picked up a camera, I wanted to be a painting restorer. So I think from looking at paintings, I was very conscious of colors and the thing that's interesting to me about colors is it's never just one shade like you never get a block of, if you look at nature you never get a block of solid color it's mm -hmm. always a lot of layers and a lot of tones that kind of blend together and melt into each other and so I have that sort of it's just from looking a lot mm -hmm. at things and looking at paintings and looking at nature and develop that sensitivity to color. Yeah. And were you raised with gardens and gardening or a lot of nature in your life? Is that something that you think is a through line from your even pre-painting days? Yes, I think, well, I grew up in Vietnam and we lived in a small town. So nature was always a part of it. It was just sort of the background even though it wasn't the country like we didn't live in a rural area it was a town but it wasn't so developed that there mm -hmm. was no region. and I lived by the sea also so the colors of the the sea again you know the sea is never one solid color right it's just almost like a, a Rothko painting mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking too <laughs> <laughs> it's like it looks you know you could say it reads yeah. as one but it's not it has all yeah. the labels yeah so it's always like part of my world it's just sort of the background and the visual stimulation for me it's just all the things that I saw around me when I was a child so it's a lot of greeneries a lot of sky a lot of ocean so that's I think it's part of my makeup yeah you mentioned your first book bringing nature home you worked with Nicolette Owen, who did the arrangements. I was mm -hmm. wondering, though, because it's your your work, 
did you specifically select each flower and then have the idea for the essay first and then have the arrangement made? Or how is that exchange? How do you decide on those flowers? So the whole book, I just had a a general outline for it in my head Mm -hmm. because I wanted to emphasize the nature part of the flowers, even though we should be inside these interiors. I wanted to connect them to nature and the season. So that was the organizing principle that we would shoot things by season and that flowers come in different seasons. You know, they all have their season. So you get certain flowers in the spring and certain flowers in the summer and so forth. So that was how we decide what flowers would be in each one. And I, I just had a certain wish list, you know, of things and we just took it from there. Mm-hmm. I've always been curious, truly having from when I first read the book, how you chose carnation because it was such a, the photographs are beautiful. I learned so much about the carnation, which I think one of many who think of it as sort of like a filler flower at the supermarket, you know, it's not even at the supermarket any longer. <laughs> and yeah, I was wondering how you learned about this history of carnations and wanted to include it because it's a, it's a beautiful set of images. Yeah, well, that was the other part about flowers that intrigued me, the cultural history of them and how humans have impacted them. And it's like, if you ever read Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire, it's this funny relationship that we have with the flowers. Oh, are we manipulating the flowers or are the flowers manipulating us? So there's right. a back and forth between humans and flowers. So I'm always interested in that part of it, like, you know, flowers exist on their own in nature, but then we bring it into our lives. And then by doing that, we affect them, we breed them to our sort of idealized vision of them, and so on and so forth. So with flowers, they've always been, of course, things that go in, in, that are in fashion, and they go out of fashion, and then, and why that is, and just how culturally, we've affected them and they affected us yeah and do you find that some of the pieces that you worked on originally or some of those images of flowers that you selected have you found that there has been a change like I think that the first time I really took a hard look at a one of the Katinas Grace the smoke bush Mm -hmm. was through this book and I realized later that they were in people's gardens in in my Brooklyn neighborhood but I really never saw them before and now it's everywhere so I don't know did you have you tracked at all some of those that that's really nice to hear that's sort of part of why I wanted to do the book you know just let people to make people look at things again like when I was shooting interiors there are only certain flowers that people would bring and they're just sort of flowers that are I guess in flower shops or what is sold commercially or people consider flowers to use but there's a vast range of flowers that are available to us and so that's very nice to hear that I swear I just became obsessed with them and then I realized oh my gosh they're growing around me and I never I truly never noticed them and it was it's such a beautiful image just the Mm -hmm. the way you captured the blossom of it is yeah it's just wonderful and so you more recently have a few wonderful books and are working on some. So I wanted to chat with you a bit about those. The most recent being Eden Revisited with Umberto mm-hmm. Pasti. Can you speak a little bit about the creation of that book and maybe any favorite moments from its development? So 
that book it has been such a wonderful experience for me and it's sort of I wouldn't say it's life-changing but it's had a huge effect on my life and that I've ended up spending so much time in Morocco and and becoming really good friends with Umberto. I originally met him when I was doing my second book and I was looking for people who have a certain relationship with flowers who are passionate about them and who incorporate them in their work. So a friend of mine said, well, you must meet Umberto Pasti. And so I did. I went to Tangier and I stayed at his house in Tangier and I photographed him for my book. And then while I was there, I was only there a few days and he said to me, you know, I have this place out in the country would you like to go there? I'd like to take you there for lunch. And I said, sure, of course, I'd love to go. And by this time, I'd only spent maybe three days with Umberto, but we got along really well. So we drove out to Rohuna, which is about an hour outside of Tangiers, up in the mountain, this amazing location where it's up overlooking the Atlantic and and it's this incredible landscape. It's mostly agricultural land. There are fields of cultivated wheat and, and they grow vegetables and things and then wildflowers. And so we had lunch and there's this fig tree on top of the hill and we sat under the tree and had a chat and looking out at the sea. And it was just a lovely, lovely afternoon and so Umberto said well you know I have this idea I want to do this book would you like to do it with me and I said of course (laughs) so that was in May and so I went back in November and it was a different landscape completely but still incredibly enchanting and the fig tree that we had set under was completely different because it dropped all its leaves and and the landscape was a bit more wild in a way. Mm. And I photographed the fig tree and felt so connected to it in a way. And I felt almost like that tree was me, you know, mm. it's this autumnal feeling. And I started, I told Umberto that that photograph is my auto portrait. And he said, <laughs> you know, he was very curious. And I, so anyway, we had an amazing day that day. And being there, you're sort of disconnected from the world a little bit because there's no cell service and such. But the next day, someone came and told us the news about what had happened in Paris. And that was the year where there was the terrorist attack in Paris. And it really, really struck me that what I had experienced that very day the day where I'd had this amazing experience and I felt like the world was so beautiful, the most horrendous thing happened, you know? And so I just felt like beauty is the only thing that made any sense. And so just from that experience, I had such a deep appreciation for the beauty of that place. And then I spent the next three or four years and I still, as I said, I, still go back to do more and the next book to spend time in this place and to develop friendships with Umberto and with all these other people around the garden so it's like and the garden has changed and I have changed and we've all changed and so this complete experience in this place that sort of encapsulates life for me yeah that's so wonderful (laughs) 
<laughs> in that first moment, what spoke to you about the tree? How did you say it to Umberto? Well, I, I couldn't really explain it any more mm-hmm. than that, that it just, yeah. I just felt like it was me, that it was this thing that it was kind of exposed, you know, because it was autumn and nothing was, and the landscape was quite bare and the tree was quite bare and it was just in the elements. It's up in the hill, just the sky and the sea. And I felt like that's how I've lived my life and, and how I've come to have all these amazing experiences. It's just by opening up myself mm. to things just being out in the world, not being afraid to just be exposed. Yeah. Like I think of uh, one of the pieces of your work that I feel like I connect with the most, or I, I'm always struck by is how open your sky is. And I don't know that that's, that makes any sense why it's more open than another picture that involves sky, but there is this, it's very expansive as you're saying that I'm feeling sort of that part of your images. Right. Well, I think it's just part of my internal landscape. Like I said, when I, I grew up in Vietnam and, and the sky is so much a part of the landscape. And so I always think gardens are set. They're not inside. They're not in a vacuum. They're set on the landscape. And so all of that is part of it, you know, the sky. Mm-hmm. And also, I think the the sky, depending on what time of day it is, it really conveys a certain mood and atmosphere so yeah, when I look at things, I look at the whole landscape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, you mentioned that you have a new book that will be coming out. It's in the process where you return to Umberto's home. Can you share a little bit about that and how you incorporated his garden? So the book that I'm working on now is about roses. I wanted to do a book, an extensive book about roses, because there's so much about it. It's this yeah. like, history, the culture, and all of it. But the publisher wanted to contain it more, so <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a book on roses and gardens. So they're not rose gardens per se. I'm not that interested in rose gardens, but I'm interested in how roses are used in gardens. So I'm photographing a series of gardens that have roses in them and the different ways that roses are seen and used. And so Umberto's garden is one in which the roses are really wild it's a very rural garden it's definitely not a formal garden and he grows roses in the vegetable garden he grows roses up in the hill that sort of they go rampant and so it'll be part of the book and elsewhere they're more contained roses there's for example next week i'm going to mallorca where this woman has created a hortus conclusus i don't know if you know but in Christian symbolism, the Virgin Mary is often depicted in a hortus conclusus, which means an enclosed garden. And that's where the, our original concept of garden comes from, or the Western concept of garden comes from, the hortus conclusus. And she's usually surrounded by roses, like rose arbors and rose vines. So, so this garden is conceptualized upon that idea of the symbolic Virgin Mary in the rose garden. So there's all these different ones in the, throughout the world. That's fantastic. I could not be more excited for a rose book from you. <laughs> That's just, uh, I can't wait. <laughs> if there's a pre-order to the pre-order, I will be on it. <laughs> Thank you. 
And you have another wonderful collaboration coming out soon with Gabriela Salazar. Could you talk a little bit about that book as well and sort of any, and again, any favorite moments or how it created? Yeah, so again, that is like one, another, a beautiful friendship has come out of that book as well. I didn't know anything about Gabriela, but she contacted me one day and said, I have a book and I would like you to photograph it. And so we got on Zoom and the minute I could see her and talk to her, I said, of course, I'll do your book. She is such a lovely person, a wonderful, wonderful, gentle, beautiful person. And so I spent last year and the year before, I went about four times and spent like a week each time with Gabriella at her place in Valle de Bravo, which is where she lives, and photographing her work and getting to know her. And we share so much in common and we see things. We're interested in the same things. And so it's a wonderful collaboration. She gives me beautiful things to photograph. And when I'm there, I'm surrounded by beautiful landscapes and things and great food. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So, yeah, so we've we've become really, really good friends. And she has another friend of hers who's designing the book, and she just showed me the cover just the other day, and it looks beautiful, and I think people are going to be... It's it's really interesting because Mexico, I didn't really know much about the country and or the flower culture or anything, and the only thing that I connect with in terms of flowers with Mexico is dahlias come from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And Gabriella grows dahlias. So I, you know, talking to Gabriella at the beginning, we just sort of talked about how we saw the book. And having been there, I thought that one of the things that was really interesting to explore, again, is color. So because Mexico has such strong colors, especially we went to Oaxaca and there were these amazing walls of different colors. And I said, you know, I mean, because we have sort of a preconceived ideas about Mexican culture and and such. So I wanted to present Mexico in a different modern light and to make the book different from any other flower books that we've seen, you know, and, and the fact that she is from Mexico. And so we want I really wanted to bring that side of it out and to make her work stand out from whatever other flower books have already been done out there. So yeah, so that was very exciting to have this uh, whole different culture in the book. Going to be beautiful. She's shared a few of the images online and they're just incredible. So I'm, again, very excited for that to come out. And I was wondering, you've you've described two different on-site books where you got to spend a great deal of time. I imagine that is not always the case when you are shooting, especially for magazines and things. And I was wondering kind of how you approach a garden where you don't have as much time. I guess Mm -hmm. maybe you could say what would be ideal, (laughs) but if you have any sort of steps in your process to sort of try to wrap your head around the space and and kind of what you're trying to connect with in it. Right. I mean, again, it's just all on instincts and intuition. I think when I arrive at a place immediately, you know, every impression that I have of the place is, is immediately processed. And, and I try to go with that. Like you're right, most of the time, I have a very limited amount of time in which to capture whatever it is about the place. So I rely on my reaction to the place, so how mm-hmm. I feel about the place when I'm there and my impression of it and how I feel basically. 
Yeah. That's what I try to capture, what it's like to be in this place. So I can only rely on what it's like for me to be in this place. And hopefully that will translate for everyone else. That's pretty much how it works for me. Yeah. <laughs> and do you have a favorite time of day that you shoot? Yeah, it's a question of light. So definitely not in the middle of the day when the sun is, the sun is really high and the light is very hard, strong shadows and so early morning, sunrise, again, sky. I just love the beautiful colors in the sky that you get just before sunrise and just after sunset. I did a series of photographs at a friend's garden, which I deliberately waited until after the sunset in that time called the gloaming. Mm-hmm. You barely have any light left, but there's this amazing colors in the sky and just sort of this last flush of light that we can still photograph and I just love that and it's a very particular moment so the garden is not like that all the time but it's that Mm. particular moment yeah I sometimes think of Joan Didion's line about the east coast versus the west coast in terms of the evening and this mm-hmm. is not entirely true, but the East Coast just gets dark. But I find that gloaming, that sort of late glow is extended mm-hmm. because of that. You know, you have the ocean and the sun, you know, setting. I'm definitely drawn to the the colors and the plants that that capture that, that sort of hold the mm-hmm. light. You know, I find mm-hmm. a lot of the those light purple alliums and things really like mm-hmm. seem to kind of come alive in those moments. Yeah, it's very special. Yeah, it's, it's just so fleeting, you know. Yeah. But it's really enchanting and special. It's like it changes everything, you know, that change of light. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I guess, the moment where there's that release of moisture from the plants. So I feel like they're in some kind of transition, too, that makes it very, yeah, yeah you're, it feels like you've, you've stumbled into this kind of liminal space, you know, even in, yeah. in kind of the, the life of the creature almost. Well, and then early in the morning, as you said, you know, there's, there's so much moisture do and it just changes everything it changes the atmosphere and also all those little beads of moisture of dew are also reflecting light so so those moments are the things that I look for yes that makes sense and do you have a private gardening space of your own it's not private. I have a front garden that I take care of for my building. It's very, very small. And like I said, it's in the front of the building. So I live on a corner and an intersection. So there's always people passing by, but I take care of it. I'm the only person who works on the garden and I did get to decide what goes in it and such. So yeah, it's great. And what is your practice there? How often are you able to get out? Not as often as I would like to, especially right now since I'm traveling so much. So I try to get out there early in the morning whenever I'm home on the weekends, especially in the spring when everything is popping out of the ground and I want to be able to catch everything. But then I some you know I often have to travel for weeks at a time and so I miss things, but I try to be there as much as I can. Yeah. I think there's nothing sort of more generous than the front garden, though. I know it's wonderful mm-hmm. to have sort of a space that you can just kind of not maybe chat with anyone, but it's, it's such a wonderful feature of, I think, those New York and especially Brooklyn, Brooklyn gardening. 
Yes, it is a trade-off. You know, I often wish that I had a private garden so I can just sort of run out in my pajamas early in the morning as soon as I get out of bed. But the trade-off is that I get to talk to people. People stop by and tell me what they like about the garden or ask me questions about the plants. And people are really often, very, very often, very complimentary. Everyone appreciates what I've done in a way. So I realize it's not just for me, but it's like the whole neighborhood enjoys it. I have this rose on the fence when it's in bloom. It covers the entire fence and people would stop. They would take pictures of themselves in front of it. They would take pictures of it. (laughs) So it gives me a lot of satisfaction knowing that other people are enjoying it. And and when people tell me how much they like my garden, it really is the most gratifying thing in the world. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) I mean, I make it sound like it's a grand garden, but it's a tiny little thing, you know? Yeah, but a lot of joy in it. That's wonderful. When your daughter was younger, was she involved in this garden space or any garden spaces? No, it's funny because when my daughter was young, I took her to a lot of gardens. And yeah, I think she just sort of took it for granted. And I don't think she was particularly interested. It's just like one of those things like my parents make me do. But now she appreciates it on her own. She just last week told me, She's at Cornell and she's been super, super busy. She does. I'm actually really proud of her. She's an amazing student and she does so much work on her own volunteer work as well as research projects. So just this last week, she had a chance to go to the botanic garden at Cornell, which they have a really beautiful botanic garden there. It is just spend some time with two of her girlfriends and she said we just wanted to like lay off our phone and and just be in nature and she said it was really really wonderful so I was really glad to oh that's so sweet that's wonderful and then you have another upcoming book related to New York gardens can you share a little bit about that as well Yeah, so in the last two years, this project came to me. Most of the time when I do a book, it's my own idea of a book, and I publish through with Zoli. But in 2020, when the pandemic started, after a couple of months, someone came to me, actually a literary agent came to me and said, you know, this publisher, Artisan, is interested in doing this book, and I think that you would be the perfect person for it. And I was a little bit wary because I didn't want to take on anything that wasn't my idea because, as you know, it's hard enough to fight for your own ideas than to do someone else's idea. It's another layer. But I thought about it, and it was just a subject that I relate to so well. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll give it a try. And it was really the best project to have had in the last two years because it allowed me to get to know so many of these places around my own town, my own city. And it gave me a deeper appreciation of the city. And in doing it, I learned so much about the history of the nature in New York City, the geological history, the botanical history, and and how we're trying to actually recover a lot of that landscape that had been lost due to development and 400 years of colonialization and development and industrialization and all of that. And we're just trying to, a lot of these new parts, we've suddenly realized that 
the best way to combat climate change is to recover some of these landscapes, these natural processes that made the land so resilient. So it's a really interesting history for me. I learned so much and the parks are amazing. And I hope that people will come to appreciate them on a deeper level. I mean, they're amazing places to be in, but to know all the history and to know all the things that they actually do will give you a much deeper appreciation of them, of these spaces. Yeah. Were they all known to you, but you didn't know the history? Were any new to you? And then what was any histories that were new and sort of exciting for you? Well, there are places that have been there for a long time, which I've known about, but there are new places that had been done recently in the past few years. And in doing this book, I was able to talk to a lot of landscape designers who worked on places and so got a better appreciation of them. For example, there's a place that is one of my favorites. It's called the Naval Cemetery Landscape. It's basically a meadow that had been created on what had been a cemetery. Even though the cemetery had been moved, they think that a lot of the graves were still in the ground because the number of people who had been buried there was over a thousand. And then when they moved the graves, they could only account for about 900 or something. So it is hollow ground. And so they were not able to dig deep into the ground in in order to build the place. And the solution that the designers came up with is so beautiful and elegant. And what they've created is such a moving landscape. It's such a beautiful moving landscape that is also rich with wildlife. And there's a, it's one of the, I don't know if you know this organization called Sacred Nature, Mm -hmm. but they support a lot of green spaces. And what they do is in each of their green spaces, and this place is one of them, there is a bench under which there is a notebook and people can write in the notebook their experience of the space. It's part of their research into the effect of green spaces on mental health. And so they collect all these notebooks and they have their pillow. And if you read these notebooks, it is the most incredible thing. People write poetry, people do drawings, people write their deepest thoughts, the people or just say how wonderful they feel in the space. But all the things that move people in the space are recorded in these notebooks. Oh, wow. It's really incredible. So when I photographed the Naval Cemetery landscape, I read through a lot of these notebooks, and there were dozens of them. And they were just the most wonderful things to read. It was really a hopeful thing, you know, to have done this project just to see to witness the effect on people that these green spaces bring yeah and do you remember when you were taking those photographs the month in the pandemic well it was throughout the year so a lot of it in the summer and the spring and the fall but also in the winter I try to capture the not all the spaces but to have in the book representations of all the seasons yeah And were they, for the most part, open when you were there? 
Yes. I think after the first few months, we discovered that, you know, being outdoors is the best thing for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yes, I think all the spaces were open. And, and that was part of the thing. It's, 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 it's about how much these spaces were lifesavers for people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, again, you don't want to say, oh, how wonderful. But how wonderful that you had that mm-hmm. this project then, you know, right, it's such a right, yeah, yeah. kind of perfect in so many levels of, yeah, it really it fits. Was, it was, it, for me, it was heaven sent. It was just the right thing for me to do in the last two years. And it was incredibly enriching for me in so many levels. That's wonderful. So this was, like I said, it wasn't my idea and it was meant to be a guidebook. It is a guidebook. But like I said, when I did all the research into all these places, there were so many things that I wanted to put in the book, namely the history. And I feel that so important. Like I wanted to recover a lot of the names, the original Native American names for all these places. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, recover a lot of the imprints that had been made in the places. So I wrote very lengthy text, which the editor cut down considerably, telling me that we don't have the pages. And she is right. We don't have the pages, especially if you want to have big photographs to show these places. So it's really, I have to say, it's a slightly bittersweet because I felt like I got so much out of this book and I wanted to give people that. But unfortunately, because of the length of the book and all that, and you know, we have to really cut down not just the text, but the images as well. I've, I've took so many pictures and we're only going to use like minuscule um, <laughs> portion of them. But hopefully it will make people interested. And if you want to find out more about them, there's like, of course, there are websites everywhere about everything. Right. Would you ever consider publishing sort of or posting almost some of that, that more extended history? Just because I think if there are people, I would yeah. love to know more about the history. Yes, I think so. I think eventually maybe I have to figure out a way somehow to do that without affecting the book itself. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> you shared the, the history of the Naval Cemetery. Is there any other spot that you can describe a little bit about what, I don't say like what was cut, but what you were sort of uncovering and, and wanted to share? Just in general, just, just you know, the history. Like there's, I wanted to cover everything because every piece of land in New York, I mean, and it's a small place. So every yeah. piece of land has a history. I mean, I took it from basically 1640-something, which is when Henry Hudson landed in New York, from then up until now. Like, (laughs) during those 400 years, a lot of things Mm. happened to these places. So you begin with a place with the name of the Native Americans and what they used it for. Mm. And then when the Dutch came, what they named it, differently and used it differently and yeah. changed it and then when 19th century industrialization came in what became of it and yeah. and all these different layers and then in the 70s the city was a completely different place and so a lot of these places were having gone through all of these transformations and up until then became these derelict places where one place was basically an area where people would abandon their cars. 
Right. Cars would be stripped. There's this one place, if you could imagine, in the 70s, it was full of cars that had been stripped of all their parts, of anything mm-hmm. that was valuable. So right. it was basically a graveyard for empty cars or stripped down cars. And this community got together and was able to make a garden out of this space. So that's a lot of history like, to go through. Yeah, yeah. For, you know. I'll, sometimes I would have to sort of summarize it in one or two sentences, but I just right. wanted to just for me, it is so interesting to know all of that, the evolution of the space and what it was. So the other thing about it is that you know, like the space that I was talking about where there were just abandoned cars, the <laughs> whole area, the Dutch called it Bloomingdale because it was basically huh. a dale, a valley of flowers, you know? Right. Wow. <laughs> From Bloomingdale to Blooming Oldsmobile. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that is fascinating. I hope that there's a way to yeah share that as like ancillary information mm-hmm. for the book. I'm thinking, you know, the New York Historical Society, I wonder if they could kind of right. combine the book and these pieces in some way. I think people really want to learn that, you know, and are, are, are so fascinating. I think the High Line shows that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think so. I think to be able to stand in a place and to know all the things that had gone on in the place, like the, you know, the ground under your feet had gone through all these transformations and the things that had happened in this space. For me, that's incredibly interesting. But yeah, know. yeah. And do you have any time to create for yourself? Yes. So <laughs> I try. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated with the work of Mary Delaney. She was an English woman who lived in the 1700s, and she was a fascinating woman who was very accomplished, was married off very young to a very unhappy marriage, and then that husband died, and she was able to have a relatively free life. <laughs> but she was very artistic. She had always painted and did a lot of beautiful embroidery and had very good friends who supported her. And then late in life, she met a man, Mr. Delaney, and had a happy marriage at last. But then he also passed away. So mm-hmm. at the age of 70, she started making these beautiful flower collages, mm-hmm. which no one else has ever done. They were botanically correct collage, cut out paper, wonderfully, wonderfully done. And I just don't even know how she did it as a 70-year-old, but she spent eight years of it making these things at the end of her life. And she passed away the last two years of her life. She stopped making them. But they're really, really beautiful. And you can go to the British Museum and request to see them. And they'll bring out like a box of them and you can actually examine them, you know, close. They're really beautiful, incredibly beautiful. So anyway, I've been trying to do some of my own. Wonderful. (laughs) Some of the flowers that I love. So they're incredibly painstaking work because for me, the process, because I don't draw very well. So I photograph them. You have to basically really know the flowers really, really well, take them apart to basically put them back together again in paper form. Wow two-dimensional paper so it's this incredible and painstaking process of really knowing them inside out taking them apart and then putting them back 
And I had a couple of weeks early before the start of the spring to do this. And it was actually doing at the beginning of the war in the Ukraine. And it was an incredibly consoling thing to do where I was able to just be by myself at my desk and just concentrating on these tiny, like trying to cut these tiny little bits of paper and then putting them back. And I just feel like it's that process of putting things back was just like an incredible metaphor for me. Just like I can, like the world is falling apart, but I can put a tiny little bit of it back. Yes, yes, and preserve it. Yeah. Oh, how beautiful. And what are the flowers that you're focusing on for your own work? Well, I just had this idea that it'll be like almost an autobiography through flowers. Mm-hmm. So all the flowers that have any that have special meanings for me. So I started with the wildflowers of Morocco, of northern Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a narcissus, is an narcissus obsoletus. It's an indigenous to Mor- northern Morocco. And uh, Iris Tinchitana and Gladiolus Byzantinus. Oh, that's so wonderful. And what are some of the other autobiographical flowers that you either work, have worked on or will work on? <laughs> so they're the flowers of my childhood. So the flowers mm-hmm. that in Vietnam, they all have different meanings for me, like the jasmine that my grandmother used to love, mm-hmm. that used to pick them and put them in a bowl because they're incredibly fragrant. And, you, mm-hmm. and people would dry them and put them in tea so you get jasmine tea or for my grandmother specifically, I when she was ill, and I would pick a bowl of flowers every morning and put by her bed for her. So that's one, and and there's several others that remind me of my of my childhood. And then this chapter of my life in Morocco, the roses they have a lot of meaning for me as well. How exciting! And are you photographing them too, or only keeping them? Yes, I have to photograph them to study them mm-hmm. in with. <laughs> and I also press them, to okay. press, like the proportion and everything, because it takes me so long to do these. I can't just like have, hopefully, you know, if by pressing them, I'll be able to like do them in the wintertime when I'm not busy. Yes. Wonderful. And then the height of spring for you and moving into summer, what is sort of happening in your world that you're responding to and enjoying here? So my rose that is on the fence, it Mm -hmm. usually goes on June 1st, like the end of May, beginning (laughs) of June. So I'm very looking forward to that. And the Philadelphus is going to bloom soon as well. I love that. I love flowers that are fragrant. So that's another part of flowers that I wanted to emphasize because people often don't think of that. They just think of, again, you know, just the visual of the flowers right. and not all the other aspects of the flowers. I have like three Philadelphias in my garden, so three different ones. And so I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to smelling that fragrance again every year. Yeah. You know, you have this one, like maybe two weeks where you get to experience this fragrance it's i was given four peonies last fall so i'm looking forward to seeing them bloom this summer there are buds on the way so 
There's much to look forward to, actually. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's wonderful. And is there anything in either, you know, gardens or books or anything that is influencing you now that you just mentioned these these cutouts? Is there anything else that you're connecting with or, or responding to? There's a book that just came out this month and is Herman Hesse's essays on trees and nature combined with his paintings, his watercolors, which I'm really looking forward to reading. I read one essay on trees. This is the other thing. I, I really love watercolors. And I love all these writers who also paint. And it is beautiful to discover that. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds lovely. And the last question is, based on your experiences, how do you think we might be able to bring more people into the garden? What has worked for you? What do you think might work for others? I think you just have to physically bring them into the garden. Once they can experience it for themselves, they will be hooked. But short of that, I guess, books. For me, books always work, and there's so many. And hopefully photographs as well, because that's what's what I do. Yes. So that is what I try to do in the photographs. It's just to convey the emotion of what it's like to be in that space, to experience that space. Of course, you know, you don't have all the scent or the atmosphere, but as much as you could put into a photograph, that's what I strive to do of all those sensations of being in a green space, in a garden, in a landscape. Yeah, that's wonderful. I find your your work is it's just so immersive. It does, again, it may not be able to transfer scent, but it, I always feel like it's as almost three-dimensional as you could possibly be with, you know, a two-dimensional object. So it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's always a pleasure <laughs> to see that. So are there any other projects that you have that you'd like to share? So I just started another book with a woman who is a forager in New York. Oh. Actually, she lives in, in New Jersey, but she supplies to a lot of the restaurants in New York, the, the very high-end restaurants. So I just met her and I just spent one day at her place photographing and and I'm really looking forward to that it's just like discovering a new world as well for me she's wonderful she was a Wall Street lawyer and she by chance became a forager for you know for Dania Boulou which is like a famous French restaurant in New York City so yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning from her all these edible plants basically Oh, that will be so cool. Will you be photographing also the end result in the restaurant or, or focusing only no. on the... Okay. No, just the things in the landscape. In fact, I just spent the one day with her and her quote-unquote garden. Yes. <laughs> is, well, it's just she's, she's whole idea that people would look at it and just say it's a bunch of weeds, right? Yeah. But if you look closely, it's so incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And edible and usable for so many different things yes that was very interesting oh this is so exciting wow there's so much to look forward from you i'm very excited and what a different to go from sort of the expansive you know the vistas of new york and sort of the reclamation to get really low you know deep into the into the weeds as it were (laughs) that's great again it's just such a pleasure to speak with you and i am uh, such a great admirer of your work so thank you so much well thank you so much Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com. Thank you.